to When Did You Know? I'm Ariel and this week I'm joined by Ant Babaji. Ant is mixed race, Asian and white British and grew up in Somerset and was diagnosed with HIV in 2007. He's a former BBC journalist, an HIV activist and public health student and with a background in broadcast journalism, including five years at the BBC, Ant has used his media skills to raise awareness about HIV. He's also a guy after my own heart as a passionate fan of Doctor Who and Eurovision. So welcome Ant. Come, it's lovely to be here, Ariel. So every episode starts with the same three questions. And the first one, how do you identify? So I identify as, well, you introduced me um, partly there. So um, I'm mixed race. Uh, my dad is from Mauritius and moved over to uh, the UK uh, in 1968, he tells me, uh, which was just after um, Mauritius gained uh, independence. Um, and he moved over here to be a nurse, um, a mental health nurse. And that's where he met my mum, uh, who is also a retired nurse. Uh, and yeah, I grew up in, in Somerset. Um, uh, and yeah, we'll, we'll talk a bit more about this. But I, uh, as, as someone with brown skin, I felt very individual and, and different. And that came across... Um, to me at quite an early age. So I'm cisgender um, and I define myself as as gay, uh, a gay man. And the next one's quite, it's not like sort of a loaded question because there's never one answer. When did you come out? Well, do you know what? You introduced me and you talked about the fact that I'm living with HIV and have been since 2007. I always liken talking about HIV to coming out as gay. Um, So I came out as gay in uh, my first year at university. So I did my undergraduate degree in German history at um, Oxford Brookes University. The pattern was at at Oxford Brookes that you did your exchanges. You went abroad during your languages degree in your second year. So not long after I'd um, uh, come out in my my first year at, at Brookes, flew over to um, to Cologne and um, spent an exchange year at University of Cologne. And actually my first experience of walking in a pride parade was at, at Christopher Street Day uh, in Cologne uh, in 1998. Um, so I, um, not long after I moved over to Cologne, I joined a, uh, a gay youth group. And um, so I was part of the, the gay youth group that um, uh, marched in uh, Christopher Street Day that year. Another thing that um, we were talking very much about Eurovision earlier. I actually, my last Eurovision that I managed to get to in person was was Lisbon in 2018. And I met, after many years, we're talking like 20 years or more, a friend of mine from my exchange year uh, at the Eurovision Village on um, the night of the final. And I'd not seen Jan for, as I said, for for 20 years since I'd moved back to the UK after my exchange year. So it was really, really lovely to kind of catch up with him. I love that. Your vision brings people together. It really <laughs> does. And no, it really does. And that's what yeah. I what I love about it. As a, as a kid, I loved Eurovision. I loved the seeing all of the these different cities across Europe. And um I loved the 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 French translations of all of the, the country names. And then the, the the voting obviously is the most exciting bit of, of Eurovision. I just loved it. And I loved, like you said, how Eurovision brings people together. And You'll know this from having been to Eurovision. When you go to one of the shows, you've got people from 
all over Europe, all around the world even, coming together for this event. And it is the most lovely kind of atmosphere and, and feeling. You know, obviously everyone is is hoping that um, the, the country they f- they're from and that they represent um, is going to do do well. <laughs> yeah, um, I've um, given up that dream. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's quite a challenging time to be a British Eurovision fan, <laughs> I have to say. But bless him, James Newman really did us proud this year. And and seeing his reaction when when he got uh, nul point from the um, from the from the phone vote as well. Yeah, he was. He's he's. We couldn't hope for um, a better representative in terms of um, how he's kind of carried himself through the, through the whole thing, I think. And I think, like, off topic, and we will get back to the questions in a moment, but I do think it helped that quite a few countries got zero from the public this year. I feel like that softened the blow a little bit. <laughs> it did. What's, what's funny is that theoretically, the way that the, the phone votes are added to the tally of, of votes, it should be theoretically impossible to get zero points from the from the phone vote we managed um, it that's something but... to be proud of <laughs> <laughs> defy those expectations that's what i say i love it i mean the only way is up i mean there's we, we can't get negative <laughs> the only way is up surely so even if we just get one next year we've done better anyway off topic so um the final question um when did you know well, I, I mentioned that I knew from an early age that I was different because of the colour of my skin and my um, my ethnic background. And I think I remember in probably in infant school feeling a little bit different and I couldn't place what that difference was. And then wind forwards to, to secondary school and I you know, that feeling of being different was a lot more sort of pronounced for me, I think. And I, you know, I remember going through doing my A-levels. So I did A-levels at the same secondary school that I I, uh, did my GCSEs at. And yeah, I mean, I I knew that I I like boys at that point. And I went through that phase that I think lots of us who, who define ourselves as gay go through where I thought that I was bi and I probably still describe myself as I'm mean, I know that um the Kinsey scale is a really, really outdated way of describing um uh sexual attraction and um but I don't think I'm a Kinsey six, I'm probably a Kinsey five, you know, if I'm really, really honest with myself. Not that that really matters any any kind of way, to be honest, but I think, you know, what I've learned over the years is that it's really important to be true to yourself and true to your heart and it really really kind of tears you up inside if you try and present yourself as something to the world that you really aren't truly in your heart and so how did you get from knowing that you liked boys to so if that was in like senior school then Mm. how did you get from that to then being comfortable, I guess, to put a label to it and being comfortable to say, this is who I am and, and tell people. Do you know what was a real saviour for me? Certainly in my first year at university. So kind of the predecessor to what was Gaydar and what what we now have as, as Grind and other geolocation apps. So there was something called Internet Relay Chat, which was like 
the forerunner of that and you downloaded like this app and it allowed you to chat online to people based on on a topic so there was obviously like a, a gay room and and stuff like that I met the guy who became my first sexual experience through that and actually we're still friends power of Facebook eh? you get in contact with all of those people from your past that you you never thought you'd hear from ever again and he, actually he recently got married bless him gosh what 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 does that make me think well I think that in my first year at uni I felt quite isolated so I'm I'm a mit, uh, I'm a massive kind of contradictions I think in that I describe myself as quite a shy person but I'm definitely an extrovert so I really get a lot of energy from um being with people and chatting to people and I'm you know doing this is lovely because it's an opportunity to just talk about all sorts of issues about who we are as people and what it means to be LGBT plus and yeah so so thank you so much for inviting me and um, I love opportunities like this yeah in my first year at uni I I didn't have the courage at the Freshers Fair to go up and um and and talk to the LGBT plus society and and actually that year I don't think it was particularly active I kind of tried to find other people like me in any way that I could and I think you know I think about now and I think about um so I in my day job I I work for um a university and I um am one of the co-chairs of our LGBT plus network um, and so that's primarily for um, for and to support our LGBT plus staff, but we work very closely with our students union and our LGBTQ plus student liberation group as well. And I think about our students in particular at the university, many of whom are international students and who've come from all parts of the world that may be incredibly unaccepting of LGBT plus people and not only that actually in many parts of the world as we know you can be you know subject to abuse it, it could be illegal to be to be um, LGBT plus and so for many of those students the first time that they'll able to really be themselves and to find form a community and a group a circle with people that are like them is when they come to the UK and come to study at the university. And so I think it's really, really important to provide that support network and to to help people along their journey. And I'm really, really passionate about that. And in my final year at, at Oxford Brooks, I ended up being president of the LGBT plus society at, at, um, at the Student Union. And I look back on that and I'm I'm so glad that I did that. It was such a fun experience. Yeah. So what, what, what does that say to me? I guess it, I reflect back on all of those years, you know, and how I've kind of moved along in my, my own journey and my own acceptance. And I think back to that time, actually, you know, the end of the 90s. I remember after my exchange year coming back to the UK and Queerest Folk was on um, TV and that was a really, really pivotal moment in terms of our visibility as a, as a community. And obviously, you know, as an, now as an HIV campaigner and an advocate, I think, you know, I've thought a lot about the impact that It's a Sin had. And obviously, Russell T. Davis's writing is, you know, I, I love him as a, as a writer. And if anyone could have done justice to telling 
that story from a British perspective, it really, it really was him and he really did. Um, and it's been phenomenal, the, the impact that, that that series has had, not only on the LGBT plus community, but also in terms of people's understanding of how we came together as a community during the AIDS crisis. And we'll probably talk a little bit more about this because I want you to let you get back in and ask another question. But one of my frustrations, if there was one with that series, is that it ended in in the early 90s and we didn't see what happened to those characters. We didn't see all of the advances that there have been in terms of HIV treatment and prevention with PrEP. Yeah, it felt like an unfinished story and that was a real frustration for me. I, I completely agree. I think, so for me, obviously, growing up during Section 28, we all know the massive impact that had on a lot of LGBT young people and heterosexual young people, actually, as well, because they never got to see what normal LGBT people look like. But so obviously, when I was growing up, sexual health for LGBT people wasn't covered. And I, I've said this in an episode before. It was until I think when I was 21 that I actually learn what HIV was and how it and that I felt really embarrassed about that for a long time because I used to think growing up based on the images that were put onto us about how gay men um how wait the images around how gay men were portrayed and how HIV was portrayed I thought it was something that gay men just got I didn't actually know how there was never any explanation as to how it happened and it took until I was 21 and I used to be really embarrassed about that. And then the more I've spoken about that, the amount of other, particularly gay men, were like, oh, no, I actually didn't know. It wasn't until I'd had um, these tests. It wasn't until I became positive that someone explained to me this is how there's a whole generation um, that missed out on education that I, I am completely with you that It's a Sin was was incredible, but it just it it didn't tell the whole story. And that wasn't, you know, any fault of Russell T. Davis or the cast, but it didn't say where we are now. How have attitudes changed towards HIV, both in the LGBT plus community and outside of it, do you think, in the 14 years since you were diagnosed? Gosh, that's a big question. It um, is. <laughs> <laughs> can take um, your time. <laughs> let, let, me, let me wind back, actually. So we were talking about queer as folk. So Russell T. Davis has talked... Uh, very movingly, actually, in a, a piece that he did for The Observer, but he's talked about it in other interviews as well, about how Queer as Folk doesn't, or the British version of Queer as Folk certainly, doesn't uh, mention HIV or AIDS at all. And if you think about when it came out, uh, excuse the pun, slightly deliberate, it was in 1999, early 1999, wasn't it? And so at that point, effective treatments combination therapy had only been available for HIV for about three or four years at that point and it was at that point that AIDS and HIV turned from being effectively you know a death sentence effectively very few people um, with that diagnosis would survive longer than a few years and you know you think very movingly about we can think about very movingly about Freddie Mercury for instance who'd been diagnosed with HIV for a few years before he um, eventually died but he actually only went public with that very very shortly before when you know when he was gravely ill before he died and yeah it's I uh, you know, that is not my experience of HIV, thankfully. I'm so, so, so very thankful that it isn't my experience. And yet, the, the 
widespread perception still is amongst our LGBT plus community, but more widely in society that people living with HIV are somehow different and that somehow they aren't able to lead full lives that, you know, one of the things that is completely mind blowing to to me, actually, and I'm sure it is to lots of people who um, who hear it, is that, you know, I have friends who are living with HIV who have had children who are HIV negative. And so one of the routine tests that is done when a mother is expecting is is uh, an HIV test. And uh, one of my friends, who's a fantastic um, HIV advocate, she only um, found out her HIV status during pregnancy. And there are steps that can be taken to um, make sure that someone who is HIV positive doesn't transmit HIV to to their child, which is you get them straight onto um, antiretroviral medication. Breastfeeding is also a, a risk for transmission as well. And isn't that amazing that, you know, somebody who's HIV positive can can conceive children who are HIV negative. That's absolutely amazing. And we've just moved on so, so far since the mid 90s and since um, medication first came along and since Queer as Folk. You know, I, I was diagnosed in 2007. I So I was diagnosed a couple of months after I contracted HIV and I can kind of pinpoint when I contracted HIV. And the thing that I remember most about that time is I actually, it was a relief that I, I knew what had been making me ill for the past few months. And I'm thankfully, you know, you talked about the massive ongoing impact of Section 28 on all of our lives as LGBT plus people and that we were told what, you know, it's just invisibility, wasn't it? Invisibility of our lives, of our community, of how we are able to stay healthy, how we're able to enjoy full and open sex lives and love lives, just all completely invisible, all completely put behind, a, um, you know, a smoke screen because because of this really, really pernicious law. You know, thankfully, I was connected up enough to the LGBT plus community that I, you know, I've been for numerous HIV tests that actually, although that was that was scary, I had experience of that. So it wasn't my first HIV test. And I knew how to protect myself. And I guess that when I think about the situation that we're in now you know still HIV prevention services and testing services are massively underfunded um you know I'm now um, about to be a, a public health graduate and it just frustrates me so much that we we have the tools to really really reduce uh new cases of HIV uh and we have this what is an ambitious target, but we have the tools to get there of, of no new cases of HIV by 2030. But we'll only get there if people are told about PrEP, if people are told about the fact that as someone living with HIV who is undetectable, in other words, successfully on treatment, I can't pass the virus on. That message is known as U equals U, undetectable equals untransmittable. Uh, and I literally have so many T-shirts with that on. And unless that message gets out there that, you know, 
not only is it much better to know about your HIV status and for you to 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 get onto treatment as soon as you can and to stay on treatment because you protect your own health but you also protect the health of your partners as well and also that we now have prep what an amazing thing that is you know that you can take a pill once a day and that protects you from contracting HIV I always you know I think of like my early sex experiences and and relationships you know from the the late 90s on through the the early the early noughties and I, I just think that HIV was such a an elephant in the room the whole time it doesn't need to be any longer but the only you know the only way that we can tackle the the stigma and the fear around HIV is by talking about it and by reaching the people in our own community and more widely outside of our community who who don't know who think that HIV and AIDS is still as it was in the 80s when it it, it it's utterly transformed what i've realized so I was saying, you know, I did zero education about it. And then when I went to university, I started university when I was 23. So I think I was classed as a mature student, which was very offensive at the time. Um, But I, and I did a degree that gave me the opportunity to go on a placement with um, uh, the Edderstone Trust, which is a HIV and sexual health charity in Plymouth. Um, In fact, brilliant people they are too, because uh, one of their predecessor organisations supported me not long after my diagnosis uh, in 2007 so yeah brilliant people and um have so much time for them yeah they're oh, doing some that's really work nice. down in the southwest <laughs> you um um a previous episode i um interviewed sarah aston who worked for the edison trust and she's now a public health professional so listen to it if you've not <laughs> um but so i worked with them and and I learned so much. And since then, there's been a definite, I've had to educate myself. And that's fine. And I think, you know, a lot of LGBT people need to. But I think everyone needs to actually, not just LGBT people around HIV. And I dated someone who was, who was um, positive. And, but all of that said, there is still, and I, I tweeted about this a few days ago. So I still have regular tests. And there's still this horrible anxiety waiting for results which is you know I am safe I do all the things you're supposed to do and I also know the reality is that if it came back positive it will be fine but the anxiety that has been drilled into me and the shame and the guilt and all that stuff com- that comes with it. I've, I've got an amazing LGBT counsellor now so I've got an appointment this afternoon it's well timed after this um, but and trying to uncover and pick apart all of that that has been drilled into me for years is really, really challenging. I think that's a really good point. I think that the shame and the stigma around HIV is the shame and the stigma around sex and specifically gay sex, actually. It takes a, a lot of time and effort for us as as, as gay men, as LGBT plus people, to really unpick that and to, and to challenge it within ourselves, what we've learned about what is acceptable and our, what, is, what society deems as um, being acceptable. One of the things that I think slightly frustrates me about the mainstreaming of um, our LGBT plus lives is that all of our 
imperfections or are slightly challenging or slightly socially unacceptable ways of being are are still socially unacceptable. So one of the critiques that you could have of equal marriage is that if you have a failing institution, which is marriage, you know, with divorce rates on the rise, what's a great way of propping that up? It's to invite more people in to be able to be part of that. That's not necessarily the way that I think about um equal marriage I think it's a wonderful wonderful thing you know and I'm really looking forward to seeing not only my my flatmates uh, get married next year but also um some other friends of mine get married um in uh, in September so so it's an amazing amazing thing and what an amazing thing to you know I never imagined you know back in back in the 90s when I was you know coming to terms with my my sexuality that that I would ever see the day that actually our relationships were put on an equal footing and that we could commit to each other in in that way that's an amazing amazing thing however yeah I was reading a book recently a brilliant book that I would absolutely recommend by Walt Odets who's a um a gay psychologist and he talks a lot about the the early HIV epidemic the middle epidemic and the late epidemic and I'm somewhere in the middle in that I was taught that gay relationships and gay sex were were shameful and I have to unlearn that about myself and I have to kind of push through that I think I'm some of the way there but I don't know that I'm all of the way there yeah I think what kind of what made me think about that is when you were talking about messages about prep and getting those messages out there and you equals you and there is still there's still this huge moral panic over I mean I remember mm. the the Daily Mail <laughs> the beloved newspaper the Daily Mail and their headlines about um when prep was being made available on the NHS or it had been it'd gone through I know it went through the high court and all, anyway um but there was just this moral panic about oh so now the gays can have whatever they want and they, and there's still that implicit yeah why is that unacceptable though I would question why is it unacceptable for um or deemed socially shameful that we are not entitled to have full sex lives that are uh, and love lives that are free from risk well it implies that our our relationships are lesser doesn't it yeah it implies that they're not or our lives even are not as worthy of protection and the state doing all that it can to ensure that we have happy healthy and fulfilled lives And, you know, I think about it from a public health perspective as well. You know, it's not been stated explicitly, but remember that those um, headlines about PrEP being a, a, I think the quote is a lifestyle drug for gay men at high risk of contracting HIV. Those headlines came from somewhere. They came from a Public Health England press release. Mm. Yeah, because they really pushed it. Sorry, against... and then I'll get that correct. An NHS England press release, <laughs> I think. Um, yeah, there are two different two different organisations. They really they really pushed against it, and and what kind of the arguments were? Well, you know, contraceptives are freely available, and the morning after pill. So why wouldn't this be? And it just goes to well, because you don't matter. That's the message that I was getting from it. Is actually you don't matter, and. And to have that, no matter how much progress we absolutely have made, an incredible progress, but 
it's still that same message that I was hearing, so I'm making it all about me, that I was hearing um, during Section 28 at school, you don't matter, your stories don't matter, representation doesn't matter, right through to the late 2000s, can't remember the exact date that PrEP came in, um, and the message is still, you don't matter, your life doesn't matter. That, that, that message has been consistent, it might have been pushed down, it might disappear for Pride Month when all the corporations, I have a beer in my bonnet around corporate <laughs> sponsorship of Prides, they all jump on, but actually what are they doing to make a difference? Are they saying that our lives truly matter all year round, or is it just that one month a year when they can put a nice rainbow badge on and, oh look, we're gay friendly, and then drop it the rest of the year? Well, quite, yeah. I um, I was um, discussing with some some friends the other day. Well, actually, the thing that we need to be doing as uh, as a rainbow community is asking. Okay, so you've stuck a, a a rainbow flag on your on your logo for a month, but actually, what are you doing for your customers or service users who are LGBT plus? What are you doing for your your staff that are LGBT plus? What are you doing? How are you going out of your way throughout the year, not just during Pride Month when there's a commercial opportunity there to support your, your staff and your customers and service users? What is it, you're, you know, and it, it, it not only does it apply to our community, our LGBT plus community, but it also applies to any marginalized community. What are you doing to be actively anti-racist as, as an organisation? Are you tackling um, incidents of bad behaviour um, that, that go on? How are you support going out of your way to support your staff and your, your customers and your service users? Look, I'm, I'm not going to argue that it's not a great thing. You know, I think back to my, my 90s self, I, you know, I never have thought that um, we'd have come so far that corporations and organisations were tripping over themselves to be visibly LGBT plus friendly by by putting rainbow flags everywhere. That's an amazing thing. You know, we we progressed so, so far in the conversation. But it also then reminds me as a cisgender gay man, what am I doing to support people who are more marginalised within our community? And I think of what's, you know, the way that trans and non-binary people are just being absolutely subjected to this barrage of of, uh, of abuse daily at the moment and you know I think it's incumbent on me to 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 step in as as someone who has an, an an element of privilege within our community you know because you only have to wind back to the 80s and the 90s and who was it then who was being targeted with abuse who was being targeted who was being scapegoated at that point it was gay men gay men were perceived as being responsible for their own fate in terms of the the AIDS and the HIV crisis with particularly around you know the, the horrible um rhetoric around trans and non-binary people at the moment I'm always kind of interested to know how company I'm not going back to blaming corporations for supporting pride but I'm always interested to see how they do respond when they get hate because that's suddenly the darker side of pride and the darker side of saying you support the LGBT plus community and some you know some organizations handle it really well I particularly like um the co-op have done they didn't do a big pride thing and I loved this thread they did on Twitter of like no we're not changing our logo because this is what we do the rest of the year we're not doing this just for one month and it, that was to me so much more powerful and meaningful but 
there's often i found though that when big organizations support pride month they're not willing to really defend themselves and there's not kind of that i mean you don't want to engage with trolls but i don't know there's there just seems to be a lack of learning from the dark side and actually saying you know what no we still stand firm on this it it focuses on the celebration i guess which i know pride month that is it's it's not lgbt history month it's not but it's, it's actually a, there's another part of pride it's pride is still a pro to me pride is still a protest it's not just a celebration i think that's forgotten i agree i agree yeah uh, absolutely pride is about celebrating how far we've come but it is also at its very heart a protest it's a an opportunity for us to restate what still needs to be done, who we're still fighting for within our community. And, you know, you look outside of the UK, we talked about this this earlier, you know, the university that I happen to work for has um, a number of overseas campuses. And yeah, in some of the territories that it operates in, it is illegal to be gay. It is illegal to be LGBT plus. And it's not just a case of being the target of of homophobic, transphobic abuse. It's actually you will end up in prison and you are in fear of your life. And I think we should always remember the, the battles that we've won here in the UK, but also that there are still so many battles still to be fought, both here in the UK and, and overseas. And yes, absolutely we should celebrate i love wearing things with bright rainbows on them and and waving my rainbow flag you know going back to eurovision i had a a, a rainbow colored um union jack that i would wave at the um at the at the shows that's that's fantastic and I, i'm so so fortunate that i'm able to do that but you know even across europe you know you only have to look at the rise of of the far right in in hungary in poland uh and then russia wow um and- so it's not that far away that people from our community are not able to live their lives and that's all we're asking isn't it we're just mm-hmm. asking for people to be able to live their authentic lives without fear of of hatred of um, a fear of being targeted just for who they are. And that's what I think is always kind of forgotten. Where, you know, I know you said we shouldn't engage with trolls. In a way, you have to engage with their, their fears, their misinformation, and engage with them in a factual way. I mean, some people, you know, it's clear that there are people in the world who are just hateful. That isn't where you start, though. I think it's you start with the people who just have a misunderstanding about something or don't know enough Mm. about something. And I think about this in terms of my my own HIV activism. It would be pointless for me to go in to, I remember, you know, having talked in the past to like college age students, you know, doing their A-levels or their B-techs. And, you know, some of the questions that they will come out with are completely disarming. You know, you'll be completely like, Oh, you don't know that? Or or not only that, they'll ask you really quite intrusive questions. <laughs> and that's fine, you know, because you only find out about something if you if you ask. And also, moreover, if you listen to the answer and you really understand what you're being told. Mm. And I think a lot of the so-called debate that is going on around trans and non-binary lives at the moment, very, very rarely are 
trans and non-binary people invited to that conversation to talk about their own lives. They're being spoken for or spoken about, but not being given the, the opportunity to, to tell it how it is, to, to tackle those, those often really, really unfounded fears and um, misapprehensions themselves. Mm. And I think about it a lot in terms of the way that people with HIV are portrayed. We are portrayed as often still sadly as untrustworthy as somehow mm. you know I might tell you that I'm undetectable and so therefore I can't pass on HIV but but surely you can't take my word for that you know mm. because and I just don't I don't I don't get it it's like well why would I want to lie about something like that I do everything I can to make sure that I take my medication every day so that I stay healthy. It's not just about, about you, it's about me. I want to protect my own health. But there is an amazing benefit of that is that I can't pass on the virus to anyone else. Well, I just don't get it that somehow we have such distrust and such fear of other people. Is that part of the reason why you moved into public health? In the, Because it reading your I'm not that I've read your CV but reading kind of what you've done it kind of it struck me that you've gone from journalism into public health and actually they are someone who's not working in public health I would just see them as so closely linked anyway because it's often about messaging and but that's me just projecting that I don't know how true that is that's 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 a very good understanding of uh the very kind of wibbly wibbly path that I've um uh gone through in my um my career uh, to date, um, yeah, the the common thread I think through everything that I've 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 done and hopefully will go on to do is around. I think trying to move the conversation on and trying to create cha- positive change in society. You know, one of the things that I loved about working for the BBC is that as a public service broadcaster, you you have a a sense of duty to to your your listeners and and viewers uh, and readers because I was working on the, the the BBC website for the majority of time I was working with the BBC. So you you have a real sense of duty and public service. And I you know I you you it's very astute of you to kind of recognise that actually yes the reason I studied public health was because after you know, I'd started medication for HIV and suddenly had all of this emotional and physical energy that I got back um, as I, you know, um, my body was tackling the virus and became undetectable not long after I started medication. And at that point, I had enough energy to be able to to realise that I wanted to give back, actually. Now I am peer mentor uh, with a fantastic HIV charity based here in London called Positive UK. And yeah, the opportunity to give back and to help people along their journey is is utterly invaluable. But what I say about volunteering is that it's it's not a it's not an entirely selfless act. What I give, I get so much more back in terms of helping me to recognise how far I've I've come in my own journey. And I, I you know I love opportunities like this to be able to to talk about where where I've come from and how how far I've, I've kind of moved on. It really helps you to kind of place yourself and and realise that 
yeah, you you didn't always think about it like this, but this is where you've got to with it. And, you know, I, th- I think about it, actually, it's only really reasonably recently that I made the connection between the fact that, you know, my parents are nurses. Actually, there is probably something around giving and helping people and moving things on that's always been there in my background that I didn't probably realise until until fairly recently. I wrote down when you said parents, nurses, it's on my little notepad of like, I need to come back to this. Because, <laughs> yeah, I think, and I, before I go on to the last question, I wanted to ask about how has your how much have you, I guess, had to educate your parents on HIV? And how much, because obviously when they were nurses, it was very different. So how much have you had to educate them? Uh, a whole huge amount, actually. So the day of my diagnosis, so I was, diagnosed early uh, in the new year in 2007 so I got a call from the um, from the GUM clinic from the HIV clinic uh, I place it at kind of 9 30 on the 2nd of January so the first working day of the new year and the health advisor that I spoke to said to me oh you need to come in for for more tests Um, and she you know they always tell health advisors not to give those a result an HIV result on on the phone and so she did her best not to but of course I I knew what that meant and and of course it 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 figured and then obviously it was confirmed um a few weeks later and actually that period from when you first um find out to having confirmatory blood tests that's in the 14 years since I've been diagnosed, that's got a lot, lot shorter. And so people aren't left in with a sense of, of limbo. And of course, I tested early. So I had a, a period of three and a half years or so before um, between diagnosis and when I needed to start medication. Now, we know the benefits of starting people on treatment as soon as as soon as we can get them onto treatment and as soon as they're ready to not only for for them, but also the public health benefit of U equals U, so they can't pass the virus on. So actually, in some cases, you know, um, that can be within the same same day. So you can be diagnosed and and given counselling and and, and told, here you go, here's your your medication. But, you know, it's really, really important that someone is supported through that, that period. But going back to my parents, yeah, my parents, I told them that evening, actually and they you're right they didn't know very much about HIV at all actually um and it's only really you know during my own journey that I've been able to to help to to educate them what I find really really interesting actually is that I'm Facebook friends with lots of friends from from school and it's been the most wonderful opportunity to educate them and inform them uh as I've gone on and and I've become sort of more open about my status and I've done various kind of national sort of media things um, around being HIV positive. What has been so, so brilliant is just how supportive they are. And I think one of the biggest fears that people with HIV have, and I think this is also true of LGBT plus people when they when they come out, um, and I talked earlier about how I feel like the process of talking about HIV is is like coming out as LGBT plus. You know, we attach the word 
disclosure to um, talking about being HIV positive. And actually, I much prefer the word coming out or sharing because it's much less kind of, it feels like a much better word. It's not um, so loaded. Well, quite, exactly. Um, disclosure sounds like you've got something... It sounds negative. It sounds like you've got something negative to disclose. I, I, you only ever really hear it in a negative way, I think. Yeah, and I'm, I'm also, as well as being involved with our LGBT plus network and, uh, at work, I'm also involved with our disability network. And I was very clear that we shouldn't use the word disclosure to talk about someone talking about their disability or long-term health condition actually it should be we should talk about it about them sharing that information with whoever they want to share it with what i you know in terms of that process of of sharing your status that's not for for many people actually they don't get the opportunity to decide who they talk about it to often that information is shared as gossip I'm sure that there are so many examples of how that information has been used against someone in the workplace and has resulted in discrimination. I mean, there are, you know, I'm sure there are countless cases of people being fired or or pushed out of the workplace because because they've been, you know, because they've opened up about their status. And it absolutely, you know, all credit to to my employer in that they have been incredibly incredibly supportive of my talking about in in the workplace but also more generally my my HIV activism and I kind of come back to it in that it's all kind of related isn't it you know whatever point of difference or whatever points of difference that all of us have all all of us want is just to be accepted for who we are Mm. And not to have to hide parts of ourselves when they are intrinsically part of our our identity. You know, it's not to say that I go into every work meeting and I talk about my HIV status. Of course I don't. And also, you know, I don't go into every work meeting talking about the fact that I'm a gay man. But there are times when it's important and I shouldn't have to hide that. The last question, it's very RuPaul Drag Race, and I didn't realise this until I started doing it, and like, I now regret that I've started something, so I need to carry on. <laughs> <laughs> so if you could go back to uh, 1998 in Cologne, and you were going on that first Pride March, what would you say to the young Ant? I would say, Ant, you need to be yourself. Always remember and be true to your heart. Don't feel like you have to present an image of yourself that isn't your true self just because you think that that will help you to be more accepted. Be true to yourself and you can't go wrong.